Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned, and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. I'm very excited today to welcome my guest to Recruiting Trailblazers. Robin Choi is the CEO of HireSuite, a talent acquisition platform built to empower outbound data-driven recruiting teams. He's also the host of the A Players podcast. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Robin Choi. Thanks, Marcus. Very happy to be here after listening to that podcast as well. Excellent stuff. Yeah. Excited to have this conversation. Um, we will talk about Hire Suite a bit later, but I'm already a fan because I saw your co-founder, Paul Bachelier, on Brain Food Live recently, where he did a very quick demo of the tool. And I was really impressed by the way you were using um, GPT-3 in your outreach sequences, but we can talk about that a bit more later, okay? Yeah, sure. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about two things. First of all, sourcing, because you've written an extensive guide on the topic, which I'll link to in the show notes, and it's called The Definitive Guide to Sourcing in Recruiting. And the other topic that we're going to discuss is how chat GPT can really begin to help recruiters in an increasing number of areas you know, that we're going to attempt to address in this conversation. But back to your sourcing guide, let's break down some of the key challenges that recruiters face in sourcing today and like offer some perspective on how to, you know, potentially drive better outcomes. Um, we're obviously not going to be able to cover the entire guide. So let's cherry pick some of the areas in the sourcing process and some best practices that might, you know, offer the most impact. Um, now, the guide that you've written breaks down into four main areas, preparation, sourcing, contact, and closing. Let's talk about preparation to start off with, Robin. What's, what are the biggest opportunities for improvement in the preparation department? Right. For, for sourcing, everybody thinks about sourcing um, maybe in the closest way that I do in my guide. So people think about sourcing from the stage of finding people and then not, not even so much engaging with them. It's mostly sourcing, finding people. And I believe sourcing is much, much more than this. Um, and not a lot of people talk about the preparation. And preparation is key to productivity because if you don't look for the right person, you can be as efficient as you want. You can be the best sourcer in the world. You can shortlist candidates, but they won't be a good match to the hiring manager because you didn't spend enough time or enough attention in the preparation phase. Um, so preparation, the most obvious part is the um, intake or kickoff meeting, be it with your client or with the hiring manager to make sure that you're really dig uh, digging deep into the discovery phase uh, make sure that you know what the role is, what are the expectations. And that's very, very important to do. And that's probably one of the biggest productivity saver into the entire sourcing process. Just make sure that you know uh, who you're looking for. So that's the number one, I would say, define the position. The easiest way to do this is to actually go deep into the tasks. Uh, what will the person do during the first month, three months, first year? Um, of course. And also, I think it's equally important during the intake call to really talk about the value proposition that the company has, you know, their product, their service, and even more importantly, their culture. Um, so you can really understand, you know, from a foundational standpoint, what kind of organization you're dealing with. Um, 
and and indeed some of the business challenges that they face and some of the business challenges that they're trying to overcome by by hiring more and more people. So I think that that's just as important as figuring out, you know, the type of person they're looking for. Sure. And Ian, you know, you have to understand what's interesting to the person, what's in it for them, right? Um, in marketing, it's called the unique value proposition or the unique selling proposition, USP. Why do people buy your product? Uh, you should be able to build the same in the very early stages of sourcing. What's important to the person? What's interesting to the person? What's in it for them when they're about to join the company? So it will be about the company itself, as you said, the values, um, the way of working, but also the role itself. So it's very, very important to build that early on during the process. That's a really good point, Robin. I think sometimes, you know, you're excited about getting a new requirement and you focus too much as a recruiter on what the client wants, you know, that ideal candidate profile. And, and really what you're saying is absolutely right. People are always thinking, whenever you're talking to, to one another, people are always thinking, what's in it for me? And you've got to figure out what's in it for the candidate so that when you go to market and start your sourcing, you've got a really good idea of what's in it for them. And you can present that in your job ads, in your outreach messaging, and obviously ultimately in the first phone call. You've, you've got to spend, I think recruiters need to spend a lot more time really figuring out what's in it for the candidate and presenting that up front rather than just presenting, you know, in their messaging and, and in the job ads, a laundry list of, of, you know, experience and skills that are required, right? Here's, here's who we're looking for, but we don't tell you what's in it for you. Uh, yeah, there is a, and it needs to be weaved into the discovery phase and the intake meeting because oftentimes the hiring manager or the client will say that they want somebody who's done it before, right? Uh, I want a head of sales who sold exactly the same product in a competitor and I want them to join now. Um, that's the, that's the moment when you can ask the question, what's in it for them? Why would they join? Well, they'll get a huge salary increase and that, that can be it. Uh, will they discover new things? Well, what's in it for them? And that must be weaved into the, um, the kickoff intake meeting. Yeah. You know, I call it defensive hiring when hiring managers are only interested in candidates that would be making a, a lateral move. And, and I think it's harder to create a value proposition for candidates who are making a lateral move because you've got to pay a lot more money or you do have to have a much more definitive sort of like career trajectory. You've got to have something major on offer to try and lure somebody from a similar position in another company. Um, it can't just be because the hiring manager wants to hire that person. And so one of the other questions that I like to ask hiring managers in that process is, you know, if I found you somebody or if we found you some candidates, you know, who had a slight shortfall in the skills and experience that you're looking for, but they had an incredible approach and, an, and a wonderful attitude would you at least consider having a conversation with them as well? So up and comers who might move into that role, would you consider them? And I think that's always a great question to ask at the intake meeting. Exactly. You have to play with the borders um, until the person says that's an absolute no. If the person is just, so you, you want somebody with five years of experience, but if the person has three years of experience, but is super relevant, knows the, the field perfectly, would you consider her? Um, and the if the answer is yes, then that means the requirement of probably more than three years of experience and not more than five years of experience. So that's how you're also expanding the requirements and make sure that you're looking for the right person. Indeed. And uh, I believe, although it's a bit of a cliche, I believe in hire for attitude, train for skills. I think it's okay to hire somebody who has a slight shortfall in skills if they have 
you know, just a fantastic attitude that's going to suit the company and suit the team. So um, what next? Um, so once you've built your uh, candidate value, unique value proposition, once you've made sure that you've been deep into the discovery and tech meeting, uh, there are a few rules that you can apply from the start into your entire conversation with the candidates, your communication. So that will be the initial outreach if you're reaching out to candidates over LinkedIn, um, the job description. And there are a few writing rules that you can use to make sure writing that rules. Keeping, yeah, writing rules. Yeah. yeah, this is good stuff because I think this is where the battle's quite often won and lost these days. It used to be, you know, the rubber met the road when you get on the phone with a candidate. But these days, you've got to earn the right to have that initial conversation with a candidate. And that starts with really powerful messaging. And I think a lot of people get this wrong, don't they? Yeah, exactly. There, there are a few rules. Uh, Amazon has a great guide on how to communicate with a few rules. Uh, one of them being replace adjectives and adverbs with numbers. Um, you'll see that in a lot of uh, job postings, outreach messages. They'll say, we are a fast-growing company or a fast-growing startup. Uh, you can make that better by giving numbers. So we doubled the size of the team from 50 to 100 people in the last six months. Um, that's showing instead of telling. And that's one excellent rule to use from the get-go into the, the communication. Um, there are a few other rules as well, like remove as many words as possible without affecting the information which is passed on. So uh, just want to make sure that you use the exact minimum number of words to convey an information. In recruiting, it's often the opposite. People will tend to write long sentences to convey a um, very small message, uh, like um, uh, we're looking for somebody who's blah, 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 blah. And most of the time, it will be always the same basic skills. Like we're looking for somebody who's curious and open to feedback and blah, 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 blah. Do you really add information by saying this? Um, probably not. Right. It's very subjective and it's very fluffy. And we'll talk about that a bit later as well. But you've really got to, I, I think it's important to tell them what you're looking for, but I think you've got to pitch a good reason why they would want to have that conversation with you. It's impossible to sell an entire role in an email, but it is possible to entice somebody and to generate enough curiosity that they want to at least have a conversation with you, right? Exactly. And that's, that's another part, maybe for later, let the, when you reach out to people, um, just make sure that you optimize for the next step. So the next step should be always start a, a conversation. How do you get that conversation started should be your number one focus when you reach out to someone. Yeah. That's for later. So what about calls to action? What, what are your favorite calls to action when you're writing? And, and also, we didn't talk about brevity, but I believe that you've said in your guide, you know, nothing more than 500 words for your intro message. We have conflicting data on this. The shorter, the better. But also, the way we, we recommend people do this is to write very short messages and then in PS, add as much information as possible. So you write a very short message, and this one should be less than 200, 300 words. And then in PS, you add as much information as you want. So that message doesn't look templated. It's easy to engage the conversation. The person can just read the first part if they want. Uh, but you're still giving a lot of information on the company, the role, the um, compensation, anything that's important. So that's how we recommend to do this. So it's not absolute numbers of uh, number of characters. Just make it as short as possible. But if it's longer... Um, you can put it in PS, especially if it's an email, and then give as much as information as you can. So um, minimum amount of words, brevity, to give maximum amount of information. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, calls to action, which are, would you be open to at least having a conversation rather than, are you interested in this role? That's a much easier yes to say, well, I'd be open to having a conversation about it. or I'd be open to hearing a little bit more. So you give someone just enough information about the role that they might be interested in having another conversation with you. But some people like to basically cut and paste the job description into their first email, which I don't think is a particularly good idea. No, no, I don't think either. Um, the call to actions, if we're back to your first question about call to actions, people, that seems obvious when we, when we say it, but we see that in action, people don't necessarily do it, but recruiters should optimize to get a, a reply first, so to get a conversation started. A lot of people will share their meeting link, their Calendly link. A lot of people will try and close on a phone call right away. Are you available next Thursday uh, to talk about this? The best call to actions are those that trigger that our conversation starters. So um, are you open to hearing more about this? Do you want me to send the job description? Do you want me to share more information? Can we chat over, uh, about it over email or phone, but keep the door open? Um, what is your current situation? What would you make consider um, a career shift, a career move? So conversation starters. Don't try to close the person right away on a phone call or a meeting. You just want to start a conversation. It's more convenient both for you and for them because you can keep them over email. Just make sure that they might be a good fit before uh, scheduling a call. Right. That's good advice. And I guess higher reply rates as well because the person was uh, available to talk over email wouldn't necessarily be available for a call next Thursday, 6 p.m. Yeah, I'm not sure about that approach. Some people say, would you the alternative close where they say, would you like to speak on Tuesday or Wednesday at 11 a.m. or something like that? Um, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, start the conversation, you know, pitch something that's going to entice them to want to know a little bit more about the role and the opportunity and just get the conversation going. Do you think that a lot of people talking about salary transparency these days, do you think it's important at the outset to share what the salary for the role or the range of the salary? I believe it's um, it's useful to share that as early as possible. Um, that can be used to trigger a reply. Like, do you want me to share the compensation range for that role? But this way, you can get you'll get high reply rates on that on that question. Uh, but yeah, we do it as early as possible. Accepted if the compensation is not competitive, which can happen unfortunately. So uh, we have to find a way around this. But if the compensation is at least market, then you should share it as uh, as soon as possible. What about sequencing? I know you're big on sequencing and HireSuite is sequencing software. So a lot of people use LinkedIn Recruiter, sometimes only LinkedIn Recruiter. You know, some people try with connection requests first. Some people do all different things. You know, they'll try an in-mail, they'll try a connection request, and they'll try an email. What's your recommendation in terms of, um, you know, multi-channel outreach and sequencing? All of them. <laughs> do as much as you can. Uh, send um, send an email. If you have enough credits, then you should always send an email. Uh, if you don't, then maybe as a as a less resort, send an invitation to connect. Because this way, if the person accepts, then you you can have a more relaxed conversation um, over LinkedIn. And then if you share content on LinkedIn, they will be exposed to that content over time. So it's an easy way to nurture those people as well. It's basically uh, getting them opt into your newsletter. Uh, but just on LinkedIn content. And then email as well, because um, uh, LinkedIn reply rates are pretty low. So if you follow up across LinkedIn and email, 
um, you just make sure that you have more replies. And then once you do this, then you keep on following up at least one time, uh, ideally twice. So one message. So for email, for instance, for each channel, you'll send one message and then two follow-ups. That's the best practice. Uh, what we see for emails only is um, sending three messages will get twice the number of positive replies, twice the number of interviews. So if you're not following up twice, just half of your work is going to waste. Right. Fortune's in the follow-up. Yeah, all of our inboxes are full and overflowing, and it's not necessarily the first thing you do to reply to a cold outreach. I get people reaching out to me on LinkedIn to try the product, so clients, prospects, and I miss those messages. I have a 100% incentive to reply to them, but I miss those messages. So if you're not even looking for a job and a recruiter reaches out to you, um, well, you'll miss a ton of messages as well. So make sure you follow up. Yeah. Do you have any data, by the way, on response rates with cold email versus in-mail? That's uh, cold emails tend to perform better than emails, but there is a lot of variation. So we have data, but there is so much variation that it really depends. Um, obviously, roles that spend more time on LinkedIn, like sales, marketing, recruiters, will have a higher reply rate on LinkedIn. And roles that tend not to be on LinkedIn, engineers, um, will have a higher reply rate on, link- on the email. What about personalization? How important is personalization today? And what kind of personalization do you advocate for? There was a, a great uh, survey, not from, from us, from Hire.com a few years ago that measured the impact of personalization. Uh, the results were that very slight personalization, um, first name, current company, doesn't increase the reply rate so much. Uh, so if I say, hey, Marcus, and then quote your company, wouldn't really increase the reply rate because a lot of people are doing this, especially if the rest of the message looks automated. But if it looks like it's, uh, if it looks like a human personalized the message and uh, went through the message and personalized it and quote a few things, uh, hey, Marcus, I, I love recruiting trailblazers, listen to that episode with that person, then it's much more relevant. And this is where you get the biggest benefits in personalization. So um, number one, if you personalize, really personalize. Second thing, you don't necessarily have to personalize each message. You can do what's called personalization at scale. Um, so you'll do small subsets of 30, 50 people that all share the same characteristics. And then you can personalize based on that uh, set of characteristics. And right, I, know I call that segmentation. Exactly. I know you're a big, big advocate of this as well. That's good. But I think... Old school personalization, and I think it still happens, is sending a flattering message, you know, saying something really nice to somebody. But I find those a a little bit cringy. I think there's a middle ground where you can say something nice, like, oh, I read and commented on your post yesterday on LinkedIn. I thought you made a great point about X, Y, or Z. But I think you have to be careful about over-flattering people that you don't know, because that can be a bit cringy. Sure. Especially if that doesn't feel genuine, like a congrats for your successes. I get that all the time. Congrats for your successes with Hire Suite. And it's clearly automated. So that's very, very strange. Yeah. I get connection requests all the time. Not all the time, but quite frequently that say, um, congrats on your career or you have a very impressive background, which isn't particularly true. So (laughs) yeah, I don't like those kind of messages. When it's obviously automated, I'm not responding. And it's funny because I think I've said this on the podcast before, but 
lead generation companies are big time on LinkedIn. Most of them, I can see that the message wasn't actually meant for me, yet they're trying to sell me on their lead generation capabilities, Yeah, <laughs> which seems a bit ironic, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I get that all the time as well. Like, if you cannot get me to reply, why would I pay you to get my clients to reply to you? What do you think about automating stuff like connection requests? Do you think that's a good idea? We do this. So uh, I would say that's a good idea. Um, the connection request, the way it works for connection requests is, that's strange, but you get higher reply rates to connection requests without a message, without an introduction message. Um, and we we do automate connection requests to people that are exactly in our scope and that might be interested in the podcast or in higher suite or in the content that we're producing. And I believe people accept those connections, not because of because it's automated or because of the message, because we don't put one, but because they just check us out and see the content. So you can automate basic stuff, uh, but then you have to make sure that you convert people. It's almost like a landing page where uh, people go on your landing page and they should decide to accept or not your invitation. What do you think? That's interesting. You're not the first person who's told me recently that you get higher conversion rates for not sending a message. For a long time, everybody was saying, you've got to personalize your connection request. And I've typically done that. I'm big on personalization, but um, I'm interested to hear about your success on this. What kind of tool set do you use? I use a French tool called Phantom Buster. Oh yeah, I know Phantom Buster. And I also, um, I also send a ton of personalized invites, but when I personalize the invite, I make it clear that I, that invite is solely for that person. So I'll mention something that we have in common. I'll mention a connection. I'll make it sure that it cannot be automated. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key to personalization, isn't it? It's like, if you can clearly show in your outreach that you're talking specifically to that person, no arguments then you're highly likely to get a response. But my question is this, how many recruiters are really invested in personalizing all of their outreach like that? I mean, we talked about segmentation a minute ago, but I don't think as many recruiters as you'd suspect actually do personalization at scale or just personalization. What do you think? No, not at all. I agree with you. And it's very counterintuitive because people that's the thing with productivity. People always think of productivity in the sense of just doing more. Um, and not not necessarily doing better. So if you can measure that personalizing the invite messages gets higher acceptance rate, um, then it's a, it will be a good justification, good reason to do it. Um, there is a lot, of, but a lot of recruiters. I'm also surprised that a lot of recruiters actually don't send invitations to connect. They just use emails, and for me, it's such a waste because invitations to connect again, the person will stay. Um, exposed to your content over time. Every time that you'll share a job, they'll see it. Every time that you share a company update, they'll see it. And if you re-engage the person over time, it's free conversely to emails where you have to pay every time. So if you send an email to someone, you should always send an invitation to connect as well. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's the whole power of LinkedIn these days is what's the point in connecting with thousands of people if you're not going to sort of relatively consistently show them who you are and what you stand for and what you can potentially do for them down the road, especially if you can do it non-transactionally to start off with because nobody wants to be sold to. So if you soft connect with you know future prospects and then they see some of your posts, they're far more likely to respond to you down the road, whether you DM them or whether you reach out to them via email or email or whatever. 
that's the most powerful feature of LinkedIn, isn't it? Yeah, and it's uh, it's a compounding. If you do this for years, then um, you have your own talent pool, and it it's uh, it supersedes even the company. It stays with you. So if you change company, you keep your talent pool. You keep those relationships. Yeah, you're very good at it. I looked at some of your posts today, and you're a very consistent poster. Can I ask, do you write your own posts, or do you have a company do it for you? I do. I do write my own posts. So uh, you're only seeing thirty percent of what I've write. Every week I write like uh, 15 to 30 posts. I review it with a person internally. So I have a person in a team called Leo who works on, with me on these posts. And then we schedule them during the week. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a grind. We've been doing this for a year and it's really so. It pays off because you've got 22, 23,000 followers on LinkedIn now? Yeah, absolutely. It does pay off, but it takes a lot of time. Do you get a lot of engagement on your stuff? We do. We do. And we're starting to see more after like a year, we're starting to see actual true interactions. Yeah. I'm curious when it comes to selling, you know, your product, Hire Suite, what gives the most sort of bang for your buck? Is it content and bringing people into your sort of like information ecosphere or is it like typical SDR activities like cold outreach? It's both. And I think that, that um, modern SDR teams need to have very strong content to support because if you if you just send cold outreach messages and you just don't add value you'll get super poor reply rate so now what we do is we'll send the content that we build we send the, the guide the, the sourcing guide we'll send a lot of content that we do and then we get people into kind of a funnel where they get exposed more and more to higher suite and then we nurture them over time until they're ready to buy but um but yeah, the content is more like improving all the conversion rates from the first contact to actually buying the product. Do you think there's a very clear parallel between the way you do it for your product and the way recruiters should be doing it when they're reaching out to candidates? Sure, 200%. There is so much to do in recruiting, um, recruiting supporting materials, videos, uh, documents. People don't use that, that much supporting material. So there is a lot of room to be very competitive um, just pick whatever's been working in sales for five to 10 years and apply this to recruiting testimonials. How many recruiters send testimonials of current employees uh, when reaching out to candidates? You think that's a good idea? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the employer value proposition at its strongest is how employees and previous employees feel about working there. And I've always said this on the podcast. If you can somehow harness that and say, look, don't listen to me and my subjective interpretation of what it's like to work there. This is somebody who actually works there. Um, and there sure. are companies out there who are helping brands share that kind of information with recruiters and with candidates as well. Somebody I had on the podcast called Nate Gouja has a company called Before You Apply, and they actually make videos where they have hiring managers and software developers and team members and project managers basically talking about what it's like behind the curtain stuff, you know, what it's like to actually work there. And I think that's very powerful. And if you can share that as a recruiter, then that's, that's much more powerful than just sort of sitting there and saying, I've got a great opportunity at a company with an incredible culture, isn't it? Sure. Sure. And that's brilliant. And, and also people will do more and more of this, um, sharing testimonials, sharing, I don't know, demos of the product. Um, and also 
we also hear all the time that a person will a person will join a company not because of the company itself, but because of the role of the person she'll be working with. I had this call yesterday. A person um, is now head of talent in a, in a large consumer startup, and she used the, the startup product before, hated it, uh, ended up joining the company not because of the product, but because the person she'll be working with. Um, that's that's a very good example. But if you don't, if you just talk about the company, you're, you're missing a lot of opportunities to convert the person on different uh, with different arguments. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, people join people, and they say people don't leave companies; people leave people as well. That's the number one reason why people leave companies because of the person usually that they report to is either changed or you know maybe change their spots. But um, yeah, I'm sure it works the other way around as well. You're attracted to a company by the culture of the people, the way they communicate. Um, ultimately, I've said on the podcast many times, I think the most important thing about joining any organization is figuring out how people treat each other within the four walls of that organization. And if everybody treats each other with respect and, uh, you know, inspires, develops, empowers and appreciates, then I think you're in very good shape indeed. And the bar is pretty low. Yeah. I mean, I think it's getting higher. I think people have realized that building a culture that really does empower the people that you hire is very important these days because word gets out. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can find out through all manner of platforms now, like Glassdoor and Blind. and, And I think there's some others as well basically how people feel about working there. Um, hey, one more thing about outreach, and that is subject lines. How important is subject lines? The way to think about outreach is really a funnel. So first step is you should find the person. Second step is you should find their contact and make sure that they receive the message. Uh, third step is make sure that they open the message, read it, reply, etc., etc. So open rates, uh, are highly dependent on the subject line, obviously. So that's super important. And if you can go into each step and make sure that you improve its, each step, measure, improve, um, that can have huge effects because there is, again, compounding effects on the entire funnel. Um, so yeah, um, like subjects are, are paramount. Now, what's important and what's interesting is it doesn't necessarily have to be um, rocket science. And one of the most performing subject lines that we've seen our users use is um, job name at company name uh, or first name, comma, job name at company name. So basically it would be Marcus, comma, um, software engineer at HireSuite. And this gets super high reply rates. Well, Marcus, podcaster at BBC. Yeah, <laughs> probably better. <laughs> well, that's this my dream job. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I mean, any other examples of subject lines that convert extremely well? Um, I can tell what doesn't convert for sure uh, is everything that looks too marketing, marketing-y. For instance, on average, there's a lot of debate on this, but the like the, the actual data is on average, emojis will decrease the open rate and the reply rate. So if you use emojis, just be aware that on average, that will decrease the reply rate. Doesn't mean, and again, it's always this, doesn't mean that the, it will always be the case. And maybe you, you find a way to pull it out or um, pull it off, or uh, maybe your audience will like emojis, but emojis will decrease, decrease the reply rate. Because they look a bit spammy anyway. Exactly. We get messages like this all the time. And, you know, too many superlatives. I think if you put too many superlatives. Exactly. And back to the writing rules. 
like a super a super high growth startup hiring rock stars engineers. That's a right. big no no. They should ban the use of the word rock star in recruiting. <laughs> I think most people are over it, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're you're right. The subject line is to try and entice the person to read the next line. So the next line has to be quite powerful as well because you want them to read the next line and so on and so forth. Um, but most of the time it's pretty, um, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's not, again, it's not rocket science. It doesn't have, people tend to, it doesn't have to be funny or it doesn't have to be extremely um, different. If you just make it about the message, like Marcus um, Hong taught me to reach out to you uh, because we're looking for a podcaster for BBC. That's that's enough, right? And it's personalized and there's nothing, it's just describing what's actually happening in the message. Same for the call to action. What do you think? Should I, do you want to hear more about the job? Do you want to hear about the compensation range? Doesn't have to be something exotic. Right. Rather than sort of asking them for permission to schedule a call, um, sort of putting the ball in their court. What do you want to do next? Yeah. That's a good one. Exactly. Yeah. That is good. And what about split testing? I mean, if you're sending out 100 emails or emails, isn't it a good idea to sort of vary and not use the same subject line for every single message, but try two or three different ones and see which performs best? Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And it's a, uh, it's a, often the best practice to, again, measure so that you can, you can improve. And we do this all the time uh, at HireSuite as well. Like we measure of, of version one, version two. You just have to make sure that you, you're getting enough results uh, over 100. I don't know what are the confidence intervals, but over 100 messages, I would say that you can try one or two subject lines, but don't try five or four because there'll be a lot of uh, variance in the results. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Always measure and improve. Yeah. Um, gosh, time flies, doesn't it, when you're having fun, yeah. Robin? <laughs> it does. Yeah. Let's talk about chat GPT and its impact on recruiting. And maybe we've got time here just for a couple of examples of ways in which you can really, you know, turbocharge your recruiting efforts using ChatGPT. Tell me a bit about that. So there's, I heard something recently, which is um, ChatGPT won't replace recruiters. And there's a ton of reason why it won't replace recruiters. Uh, but recruiters that know how to use ChatGPT will, uh, will replace recruiters that don't. That's from Hong Lee. That's a really good quote. Recruiters who know how to use ChatGPT will replace recruiters who don't. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a piece of technology. It's a weapon that you can use. Um, mostly you can use it for uh, just to be more efficient on everything we discussed before. Uh, so there is a prompt that I like, like anybody can use to review their uh, copywriting, outreach messages, uh, job description, job postings. So it's basically giving that information to ChatGPT and asking ChatGPT what's are uh, what parts are useless, what parts are fluffy, um, or undifferentiated with competitors. So the the way to do this is uh, here's a job description. What are the most fluffy, useless parts that are not different from competitors? Copy and paste the job description, and you get a lot of very interesting results. Um, that's how ChatGPT is not generating the job bust for you, but it's just helping you write a better one. So there is a lot of things that can be used to review the job description, improve the wording. You can use this as well to um, uh, to see if you use gender specific wording. 
and it can it can pinpoint areas where you use gender specific wording or wording that can be biased against um, minorities underrepresented groups. So that can be a help to just write better job description, better outreach messages, uh, and job postings. Um, that's one, and it can write the actual job description for you, and it can write it for you, and it can write it for you. And there's yeah. And again, there's a lot of ways to make it right for you. So you can copy and paste your own and then rewrite it. You can give a bit of information or you can even ask ChatGPT to play the role of a recruiter and do the intake meeting. And that's a very interesting thing as well. That's a very interesting. So I have a big prompt that basically asks ChatGPT to behave as a recruiter, ask a list of 10 questions and then draft the job description. And it's pretty powerful. Um, so just make sure that you have everything covered, that you reply all all the questions because... Uh, um, yeah, you can do it because I did this earlier on ChatGPT just as an experiment. I asked, I said, act like a recruiter and write a list of the 10 best questions to ask a hiring manager about a new role they're looking to fill. And it came out with 10 questions. What are the specific responsibilities and duties of the role? Don't worry, I won't go through all of them. What are the key skills and qualifications? What are the main goals or objectives for this person? The salary range, it covers, you know, the 10 top topics. It, it's very good at preparing lists, isn't it? Yeah. Also, it's it's better at improving messaging than writing from scratch, is my experience. Um, so it can be considered as a, as a Grammarly, as a glorified Grammarly that you can use to improve your copy. And recruiters spend a lot of time writing. Uh, all the time they're writing, writing to candidates, writing to hiring managers, clients, uh, writing job description, writing job passings outreach messages. So just being able to be 20% faster and more efficient in writing, it's a huge benefit. Yeah. And I think the best practitioners of this new technology are going to be the people who, who lean on it, but don't rely on it. Okay. So you can ask it to generate content that you can share on your LinkedIn profile, but don't just copy and paste it. Use it as an idea generator, give it a topic and ask it, you know, to come up with some ideas. And then you can sort of spend you know, a bit of time editing that and producing a really nice original piece of content. But I don't think you should expect it to do the job for you. I think it can just, you know, it can provide a really good framework around which you can build content, you can build questions, you can do interview guides, you can create like an interview question bank, you know, by sharing a role or a job description. What are the top 10 questions that I would need to ask as a hiring manager to explore uh, a person's experience with the following role? Yeah. You can assess candidates against a spec. You can share a resume with ChatGPT and then you can upload the job spec and say, you comment on how suitable this candidate is for this role. And then you can ask it more specific questions if you want to. And I like what you said earlier about how it can help you with recruiting for diversity, equity and inclusion as well. And it can do that. So there's so many good. Oh, by the way, it can also write good Boolean strings, I've heard, although I haven't tried that yet. No, I haven't tried either. Um, it could write your outreach emails. Have you tried that? I have. Tell us about, um, before you go, cause we are running out of time. Tell us a bit about speaking of chat GPT and, and what you do for a living. Tell us about hire suite. What does it do and why would people want to use it? Hire suite is a recruiting CRM. So the goal is to make recruiters more efficient. So it's both a productivity tool. There is shortcuts, uh, automation, like automated follow-ups, for instance, something we mentioned before. Um, and there is an easy way to to keep a talent pool of people that might be interesting and then nurture them over time. So it's really about turning uh, 
contacts into candidates. So it's not an ATS. We complement the ATS and it's all about creating the initial interest with the candidates. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I saw it in action very briefly, as I said earlier, when your co-founder, Paul, was demoing it. And it was pretty cool because he, he showed how it wrote the messages and then wrote a sequence of messages, including the follow-ups. And it was good stuff. And even Hung Lee himself said, yeah, those are really good messages. And he said, this is going to be a game changer for the mm. industry. So I like that. So it sits alongside the ATS rather than replacing the ATS and really helps you develop relationships with candidates. And what you just the word you just used, nurture candidates, which I think is a very underrated sort of activity for recruiters, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. People want to close candidates right away. They're always looking for yesterday. Uh, but the most efficient way, the best way to do it is to nurture people all the time. And, and again, that's beyond even the company. Even as a recruiter, you want to have relationships with candidates on a personal, personal basis. This way, when you change companies, you also can bring those relationships and that makes you valuable as well. You're far more likely to be able to recruit someone today that you initially made aware of you six months ago you know, sure. either through your content or a conversation or an outreach, then you are reaching out to someone brand new today and expecting them to say yes tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, we don't have six months to recruit for the positions today. <laughs> so the temptation is to behave very transactionally and just send out all those in-mails. But um, and that's why, you know, recruiters who specialize are, are better off because they can continue to build these referral networks inside the skills and the verticals that they're always recruiting in, can't they? Yeah. And again, the bar is pretty low because as you say, most recruiters behave uh, in a transactional way. They want to hire someone in, in the month and then move on to the next role. If you stop nurturing people, the it's very easy to, to just be in the top 1% because nobody really does this yet. That's interesting. Yeah. I was talking to one of my coaching clients this morning and saying, look, one of the best things you can do when you first speak to a candidate, you know, whether or not they're interested in the role or suitable is, you know, bring them into a newsletter list and just communicate regularly every couple of weeks with some value, you know, share some articles, curate some information, maybe occasionally share a couple of opportunities and just keep them aware of you because then they're far more likely to respond to you when you do reach out to them again, when you've got a suitable role, right? Sure. Or at the very least, add them as a connection on LinkedIn and nurture them on LinkedIn and post. Yeah. The trouble is with LinkedIn is that you can't guarantee, well, you know that only a small percentage of your audience or your connections are going to see your content unless your content takes off. And I think sometimes you only reach about 10 or 15% of your connections. Whereas, you know, if you've got a newsletter or some nurturing software, you can reach a hundred percent of them, right? Sure. But it's probably four times as hard as uh, to get somebody subscribed to your newsletter than accept a LinkedIn connection. So, But it, yeah, that's absolutely right. But if you're on the phone with somebody for the first time and you say to them, hey, would you mind if I added you to my, my list? I'll keep in touch with you every couple of weeks. I'll, I'll send you some information or, you know, maybe a podcast or anything that I think might help you in your career. And I occasionally might share a couple of opportunities. Would you be open to receiving that? If you've done your work during that call, most of the time they're going to say yes, you know, yeah. even if they decide to opt out later on. And if you think about it, if you're talking to three candidates a day, you know, that's 15 a week, that's like six or 700 in a year. And it, it compounds pretty quickly. And there you have your referral network, a bunch of people who know who you are, they know your name, and you can reach out to them at any time and they'll probably help you. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Well, Robin Shaw, I really appreciate you coming on Recruiting Trailblazers today and sharing your wisdom and advice. It's been great. Um, I'll provide links to Hire Suite 
and your sourcing guide in the show notes. And um, hopefully we'll speak again very soon. Sure. Thanks, Marcus. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.